Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault for an older episode of the show. This is part one of a series we did on mushroom foraging. This was originally published September 15th, 2020. It's actually, uh, I feel like around this time last year, we were doing a lot of wandering in the woods related episodes. We were, yeah, yeah, because we'd done the leshy, and then we uh, we were talking about mushroom foraging as like a human behavior and a human cultural practice. Uh, pretty, it's 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 pretty fun. Uh, this is part one, and our next uh, vault episode will be part two. And a little notice here at the beginning, uh, the, this is an insert because Robert and I, we started talking about mushroom foraging and we ended up going on for like more than two hours. So uh, so we're splitting this episode into two parts and, and here is your warning. So be sure to l- not only listen to this one, but come back next time. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're going on the quiet hunt. That's right. Uh, We're going to be talking about mushroom foraging, uh, which we we kind of touched on very briefly in our recent episode about lichen, and then I realized we just had to come back uh, to it. Because I I guess the, the basic genesis for this is that I've noticed a lot more mushroom uh, talk and a lot, a lot more mushroom activity this year. Uh, a part of it has been social media, for sure. I've noticed um, you know, people I know taking photographs of interesting mushrooms that they've spotted, sometimes correctly identifying them or even harvesting them. And uh, I have to admit that my own family, we've gotten into identifying mushrooms on hikes, and we've even done a little bit of foraging ourselves, uh, but only with uh, reishi mushrooms and chanterelles. In a way, mushroom foraging is is an ideal uh, social distancing activity, right? It's something you can do that in a way feels social because you take them home and you take pictures of them and you put them on the internet and everybody thinks it's beautiful and they comment on them. And it's a way of interacting in a significant productive way with the world outside your house, but you don't have to get close to anybody. Yeah, yeah. It's. It, I think part of it has certainly been... COVID-19 restrictions on our lives, Uh, because some of us are are doing a lot more walks through either parks or, you know, or hiking trails if we have access to them and we're able to get to those. But even through our own neighborhoods, like um, we we've harvested some uh, some reishi mushrooms from just our immediate neighborhood uh, environment, Uh, just walking walking around, spotting them uh, and then IDing them and then also just IDing various other things that we're not attempting to collect. Um, it, it's a great it's a great way to occupy your t- your time to sort of have it's kind of like the the Pokemon Go of the wild. It gives you sort of um, goals to achieve on your walks, things to chronicle, and for most of us anyway, a, a new topic to immerse ourselves in. You know, because prior to the last couple of years or so, I really didn't know much about mushrooms outside of like the few varieties uh, that I had previously consumed or that you can find at the grocery store or order on a pizza. But of course, that's only a slim uh, variety of, uh, of of the mushroom world. There are some delicious edible wild mushrooms that that have resisted cultivation. 
Yeah, totally. Uh, and there are some interesting reasons for that, too. Like one of them being that uh, tying back to our recent lichen episode, some mushrooms that are delicious to eat exist in symbiotic relationships with other organisms, specifically often like plants and trees that are difficult to recreate in a controlled environment. So you can't just start a chanterelle farm or maybe you could, but, you know, it, your yield would be inconsistent. It's just really difficult to do. Absolutely. Another thing, though, is it's funny that we think of mushroom foraging as sort of the the natural world version of Pokemon Go. It's, it's a sign of like how sort of microchip <laughs> tamed our brains are that yeah. uh, isn't Pokemon Go really a sort of substitute or surrogate for this ancient instinct we have to scour the land for bits of edible plant matter and, and other life? It absolutely is. And, uh, and, and so that's why I, I encourage everyone to, to, to you know, to uh, keep listening to this episode, even if you're you're not that into mushrooms, you're not interested in mushroom foraging, because we're going to discuss mushroom foraging, but we're also going to discuss foraging behavior uh, in a in a broader sense, and I think that's something that. That, that certainly you can gauge in just when you're on a walk and you're looking for something, be it birds or mushrooms or uh, non-existent Pokemon lurking uh, you know, somewhere in the GPS domain. Uh, I think it also comes into play in shopping, in sorting through a big box of unsorted Legos to find the pieces you're looking for. I mean, it, it pops up in, in so many different human activities, and it captivates us. It, it is it latches in to a part of our uh, neural hardware uh, because it is it is part of what we're supposed to do. This is interesting. I, I wish I'd thought about this before we started talking so I could research it a bit. But it just occurred to me, what makes the difference between search activities that are intensely pleasurable and search activities that are maddening? Like I'm thinking about search activities such as locating a specific item within your house or a given room. That is not fun. That feels awful. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. where are my keys? You just You just want it to end as soon as possible. But on the other hand, of course, foraging for mushrooms, playing Pokemon Go, or even sometimes digging through a container of Legos, that can be very fun. We're searching for a puzzle piece. So what's the difference? I mean, it might be the difference between the search for the thing lost and the search for the thing not yet obtained. Um, I'm not sure. But I also have, have noticed, I think I've mentioned this on the show before, I have found that jigsaw uh, puzzles, the process of looking for the correct piece, for me, I feel it's both. Like it's both kind of mentally exhausting and frustrating, and yet at the same time, completely enthralling. So I would, I, in the past, I found myself helping to put together a jigsaw puzzle and not really, like I'm asking myself, am I enjoying this? Am I having a good time? <laughs> I'm not sure, but I also cannot stop. I mean, I guess one thing we're highlighting is the sometimes fuzzy line between work and play. A, a lot of yeah. – you ever notice how much video game time is taken up with things that, like, are basically, like, they would be work in the real world? <laughs> but oh, something yeah. about the way they're framed just makes it a game instead? Yeah, so many of these games, especially, you know, they, they want you to play regularly. It's not just play through the story. It's mm -hmm. play every day. So they give you these little, basically, grocery lists of things to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes you see uh, players complaining about it, um, and, and rightfully so. But, but also there's something kind of uh, addictive about it. Like, okay, I need yeah. to go out. I need to, you know, find and scrap eight hats in this mm -hmm. post-apocalyptic world, you know, something like that. And, uh, and, and it's, you can weirdly get into it. 
Yeah, I got to break rocks in my digital domain. Though I guess that that sort of introduces the slot machine element because if the, it's exciting if there are variable intermittent rewards. I think that's the the, the candy in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, sometimes there's like a random the the reward is random, but like sometimes like in Fallout seventy six, which um, which I know fans kind of go back and forth on this particular game and the way it's designed and all and the elements in it, but uh, like a lot of the the sort of grocery list assignments you have. There's not there's not really a random reward. You know exactly what you're going to get. Like you're going to get so many like you know uh, atoms that you can spend in the store or whatever. Um, you, you know exactly what you're working for with it. Um, so in that regard, I, f- I feel like it it kind of falls in line with foraging. But then again, foraging is also an exercise in not necessarily knowing what you're going to get or knowing what quantities you're going to get. And we'll we'll get into that. Well, yeah. I mean, what if one of these digital rocks you broke could kill you? Yeah, yeah. And that's going to be a huge part of um, of mushrooms here but but before we get in and go any further i do want to just show us a couple more things first of all yes photography is a tremendously fun activity uh to engage in with mushrooms uh when you're scavenging them and, and finding them and charting them in the wild uh, spore prints are also a lot of fun now this is when you um you can look up guides on how to do this online but where you collect like the cap of the mushroom and then you put it on a sheet of paper and then cover it with like a, a glass uh, container or a bowl or something and then the spores leave a print of the mushroom uh, cap uh, on the sheet of paper which you can then photograph and share online or even you know i think there are ways to preserve it as well Noting the emission of spores is a great reminder of something we've talked about before, which is that when you harvest a mushroom, you are not harvesting the entire organism. The you know the fungus is mm-hmm. a web of things that live under the ground usually or in some kind of decomposing matter or parasitic on another organism. The mushroom that you collect is the fruiting body. That's like an organ of the overall fungus. It's almost – I mean not exactly analogous, but the closest analogy I think would be that it's like you're breaking off the sexual organs of an animal and walking away with them. <laughs> now, now, that being said, I, I want to stress something that mushroom foragers often um, stress regarding the fruiting body, and that is that uh, you, you're not going to be hurting the organism by by harvesting the mushrooms themselves. Um, now, that being said, they, before first of all, before you engage in any kind of mushroom foraging, um, be aware that in some places it is prohibited uh, some places are maybe not going to be hip to this idea that you're not really hurting the organism. They're still saying, well, you're taking away from this natural environment that is protected in this space. Mm-hmm. The other huge thing we want to stress before we go any further is that while we're going to be discussing mushroom foraging for mushrooms that one would then consume for culinary or medicinal uh, purposes, do not engage in this, uh, you know, just based on anything we've told you here. As we are going to outline shortly, there are some risks. Risks involved there. Uh, if you if you pick the wrong mushroom, um, some dire consequences uh, can occur, and you just really need to um, you, you need to go down that road uh, with with professionals who know what they're talking about uh, with mushroom foraging, and you know don't just run off into the wild based on listening to this episode. Yes, do not choose to put any particular thing in your mouth because of anything we say here today. Right. So speaking of this this danger factor, uh, yeah, I want to stress that, that while while I myself have enjoyed engaging in mushroom identification and the limited foraging that that my family feels comfortable with, yeah, to really uh, you know drive the nail home here, if you eat the wrong mushroom that you find in the wild, you will die, <laughs> uh, because you know the, most notoriously. 
there's a variety of mushroom known as destroying angels. And, and these will indeed destroy you should you make, make, if you should mistake them for an edible mushroom. Um, the deadly webcap mushroom is another uh, example. This one has been mistaken for edible uh, chanterelle mushrooms. It's even been mistaken for psilocybin mushrooms before. And it has a horrifying reputation for causing irreversible kidney failure in those who consume it, uh, including some very notable cases such as that of English author Nicholas Evans. Yeah, there are actually a number of historically notable alleged mushroom poisonings uh, that I've been reading about, uh, specifically in a book by Cynthia D. Bertelson called Mushroom, A Global History uh, from Reaction Books in 2013. I think it was also distributed by the University of Chicago Press. But Bertelson uh, at one point writes about how the French philosopher Voltaire, who lived 1694 to 1778, mm-hmm. once wrote, quote, a dish of mushrooms changed the destiny of Europe. Now, how, how could that possibly be true? Well, he was talking about the poisoning of a specific king of the Holy Roman Empire, the Habsburg King Charles VI of Austria, uh, to pick up with what Bertelsen writes, quote, who ate deathcap mushrooms, Amanita phalloides. Uh, the subsequent war of the Austrian succession from 1740 to 1748, which developed into a global war in the American colonies, it was called King George's War, absorbing in the process the war of Jenkins' ear between the British and Spanish in the Caribbean, affected people as far away as India, all because of mushrooms, those, quote, toadstools. And here she's referring to the fact that it was allegedly common among especially English speakers to to take a very indiscriminating attitude toward mushrooms. You know, a lot of English speakers would just look at all kinds of mushrooms and say, well, they're all just toadstools. <laughs> In terms of other political consequences in history, it's also been alleged that the Roman Emperor Claudius was poisoned with mushrooms, though this is disputed. The earliest accounts indicate that on October 13th, 54 CE, at the age of 64, the emperor started to complain of extreme stomach pain. He had diarrhea and vomiting. He had trouble breathing, low blood pressure, and excessive salivation. And I was reading a report in Scientific American from 2001 about a conference presentation by a doctor named William Valente from the University of Maryland School of Medicine. And Valente argued that mushrooms containing muscarine were the cause of his death, according to the symptoms reported. And one of the traditional explanations for what happened to Claudius was that he was poisoned by his wife Agrippina in order to clear the way for her son Nero to ascend to the throne. And we all know good old Nero. Mm-hmm. Now, the conclusion that he, that Claudius died by some form of poisoning does appear to at least usually have been the, the historical consensus, but other experts doubt this one, we should note. Uh, I found a, a paper published by the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine in 2002 by Marmion and Viedermann. And they wrote, quote, We see no reason to believe that Claudius was murdered. All the features are consistent with sudden death from cerebrovascular disease, which was common in Roman times. And they also note that uh, one of the forms of evidence they cite is that physical depictions of Claudius in the couple of years before he died show visibly declining health that would be you know, uh, consistent with the symptoms of this disease that they think would also explain what people saw when he died. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, so we don't know for sure, but as a strange note, apparently Emperor Nero declared that mushrooms were the food of the gods. And uh, mm-hmm. it's also kind of interesting because Claudius was deified, meaning made into a god, basically immediately after his death. Oh, well, I mean, that does – one could certainly interpret that as Nero being a very uh, being a very dastardly, uh, sneaky thing to say, huh? <laughs> or it could be a coincidence because, hey, I mean, mushrooms are kind of the food of the gods. Mushrooms are delicious. I, we've gotten this far into a podcast about mushrooms without me just saying, like, I love mushrooms. I've been cooking with a lot of them recently that we've been getting from a local CSA – uh, that has been supplying us with uh, with shiitake mushrooms and oyster mushrooms, which are so delicious if you just like roast them lightly in the oven till they get a little bit dried out and browned, and you can use them in anything. They're they're like they're meatier than meat. Yeah, they are uh, certainly like my family. We are. Um uh we're pescatarians but we we don't even eat fish that often so it's 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 wonderful to to have mushrooms in a dish to create that 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 meaty texture and that meaty flavor yeah so good all right we're going to take a quick break but we'll be right back and we're back now now we've in discussing these like Terribly poisonous mushrooms. We should, of course, stress that it's not just a, a you know good versus evil situation here. It's not just this mushroom will will be delicious or have some sort of curative properties to it, and this one will destroy you. There's a wide variety of mushrooms out there. Some of which, uh, if you eat uh, by accident, you're not going to die. You'll just get violently ill. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> there's there's some, a whole world of light mushroom poisoning. Yes, there are certainly mushrooms out there that are technically edible but not good to eat. Uh, and, and then there, there's also something to be said for just everyone's particular um, digestive system is going to react uh, differently to different things. So there, you know, the mushroom that one person finds delicious and fulfilling uh, might give someone else an upset stomach. Yeah, absolutely. And in a way, the idea of mushroom foraging kind of reminds us of something that would have been much more common throughout history uh, at times before, say, I don't know, having like uh, an FDA and widespread food inspection and a very organized, streamlined process for supplying foodstuffs to grocery stores and all that. I think if you go back in history, you'd find that eating was more was a little bit more a game of roulette than it is today. You know that yeah, uh, you, you were kind of you always just had to wonder is like is what I'm eating right now safe? Yeah, in- indeed. But particularly, I guess the thing about mushroom foraging is, especially in the modern connotation, it does uh, really highlight that that risk, that inherent risk of, of foraging for your food. And it, it and certainly if, if you look at some of these worst case scenarios and these horror stories of people consuming just deadly poison, uh, thinking that they found an edible mushroom or a psychedelic mushroom, um, you know, it, it may raise the question, why do this at all? You know, is the mm. reward truly worth the risk? And I totally get this question. Uh, you know, when, when my wife uh, became interested in wild mushroom foraging, my initial thought was, okay, uh, chanterelles sound delicious. I think I had, I had had them previously, maybe once before. But are they really so good that it's worth even thinking about the possibility of getting it wrong or getting it deadly wrong? You know, even casting aside the more serious risk of death and organ damage, do I really just want to spend, say, an afternoon or an evening, uh, you know, violently ill in my stomach <laughs> because I wanted to have this this experience? I mean, I would guess that 
part of it, like you can sort of calculate your risks. You can't be a hundred percent sure, but you can say like, okay, I'm plucking a mushroom that looks like this. I think it's this species. How close in appearance and in habitat and stuff like that is it to things that are known to be poisonous? Yeah, yeah. Certainly, like in our case, you know, the the mushrooms that we tend to gravitate towards are ones where, at least in our area, there there are only so many things you could mistake it for. And if you, you can educate yourself on what details to precisely look for. And then one of the, the beauties of, of social media, well, one of the, the, the benefits I can point to is that you can then take your photograph of this specimen and share it with other enthusiasts and even experts and say, what do I have here? Uh, help me identify this, etc. Like, you know, there are a lot of resources at hand. Yeah, that is kind of wonderful. In, in the same way that the internet can, of course, be the source of, uh, of collective delusions and things like that, it can also be the source of collective wisdom. And one of the ways in which I've seen it best used for collective wisdom is species identification. There's a whole part of Twitter that's just people posting species identification photos for snakes, for spiders, for wild mushrooms, and things like that. That's awesome, yeah. Uh, now, now, particularly with mushrooms, I was looking around for, for you know people's thoughts on this, and I, I found an article uh, on uh, the website for Ian Magazine by the author Cal Flynn, and the author writes, this is whole whole piece is just about mushroom foraging and the risk rewards of it. And they write, quote, if the risk is so huge and the payoff so small, why do it? The identification process is interesting, of course, and mushrooms are pleasant enough to eat. But perhaps the real intrigue arises from the risk itself and the skill required to sidestep it. Yeah, this ties in with something I've often wondered about in in two categories, both dogs and human children. (laughs) And the question is... Why do so many dogs and human children just put basically anything they find on the ground into their mouths? You know, like, uh, chances are not good that this is food, but by God, I'm going to give it a go. (laughs) You know, this has always struck me as as a really maladaptive behavior. Why would we instinctually err on putting things into the mouth instead of keeping them out of the mouth? Wouldn't you think that we would instinctually err more on the side of caution? Uh, it seems like there's more risk in putting random, potentially poisonous or inedible things into your mouth than there is reward in whatever forsaken food energy you'd be missing out on if you didn't put it in your mouth. But I, I don't know. Who knows? I mean, maybe one thing is that the conditions of modern life somehow encourage behaviors that wouldn't occur very much in nature. I guess that's a possibility. Uh, or maybe maybe nibbling on all kinds of nutritionally ambiguous material is just a lot less risky than it would seem, maybe less risky than we assume. Maybe you can actually put all kinds of stuff in your mouth and in your body, and most of the time you'll be fine. Well, I, I want to stress that we are not advocating anyone do this. No, no, but, no, no, no. no. <laughs> but I, I am told that experienced mushroom foragers sometimes perform a quick taste test, tasting but not consuming uh, a, a mushroom to help determine the variety. And it's my understanding that it's, it's done with potentially toxic mushrooms as well. Again, do not try this because we mentioned it, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, it, but uh, this, this would make sense um, that, that you would be able to, um, to, to just taste uh, some of these, uh, these specimens uh, to see, I don't know, to detect, say, a bitterness uh, to help in the identification process. I, I was also thinking about 
Okay, what has actually been observed in wild animals in terms of just like tasting everything, trying everything in their environment uh, when there are so many toxic plants and mushrooms in the world? And one thing I came across that was kind of interesting was uh, an an older article in the uh, Alaska Fish and Wildlife News by Riley Woodford called How Deer Eat Poisonous Plants. And it cites an Alaska wildlife biologist named Tom Hanley who talks about how actually in the wild deer eat toxic poisonous plants just all the time. Mm. And Henley says, quote, deer will eat a little bit of almost everything out there, including a few bites of various toxic plants. There seem to be threshold levels for the toxicity of different plants. And as long as deer eat below the threshold, they're okay. So that's interesting. It's like maybe you just eat toxic things in moderation, nibble on a little bit of this here and a little bit of that there. And over time, you can sort of build up uh, some nutrition for your body without reaching toxic toxic levels on any one particular poison. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's also worth worth remembering that, you know, it's going to vary from species to species. For instance, with humans, poison ivy is generally no fun, but goats, goats are like, let me add it. I'm just, I'll eat it all. Oh, um, goats eat well, poison ivy? Yeah, yeah. Nice. Goats will eat it up. Yeah. Now that means you need to not have goat milk from those goats. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, goats, goats have no problem with it. Uh, another outstanding example of uh, this sort of thing are box turtles. Um, box turtles are all about eating up some, uh, some, some poisonous mushrooms, for example. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't, doesn't bother, bother them at all. But for a similar reason, don't go out harvesting box turtles think, thinking you're going to make soup out of them. Yeah, and and the fact that different species are tolerant of different toxins is, of course, uh, something that's mentioned in this article as well. Like it, it talks about how uh, mule deer, for example, are more tolerant of something called loco weed uh, than pronghorn antelope are, and mm-hmm. it says that elk are more tolerant of ponderosa pine than bison are. And I think this would probably have to do with what their natural habitats are, what the evolved relationships they have uh, are with different plants and, and, and probably also their nutritional needs. But there was a quote that Bertelson has in her book that I really liked. It was from the American food writer, John Thorne, who wrote, quote, all hunters put life at risk, but for mushroomers, the amount of danger comes well after the quarry has been run to ground. Finding the mushroom is the initiation, but eating it is the test. Ah, I, I think that's interesting. Uh, comparing it with hunting like that, uh, you know, hunting is a dislocation of where the violence could set in, and uh, and this connects to some Russian traditions that I'll talk about in a minute. But there's also a folk adage. I think we may have mentioned it when we did our episodes about uh, psilocybin and, and psychedelics. But uh, the the folk saying is there are old mushroom hunters and there are bold mushroom hunters, but there are no old bold mushroom hunters. Uh, which (laughs) uh, hammering home the idea that mushroom foraging, while a highly rewarding activity to millions of people around the world is something that's best practiced with a kind of conservative mindset. Like you, you do need to be cautious to, to understand what you're doing before you dive in head first. Yeah. I think I've heard Paul Stamets um, echo this, this same uh, nugget of wisdom. And and speaking of, um, of, of, of wisdom concerning the, you know, the consumption of, of mushrooms and also plants. Uh, this brings to mind this uh, mythological figure from Chinese mythology that I've brought up before, and that's uh, uh, Shinong, the divine farmer. 
um, it's also the, the Chinese father of agriculture. And uh, he's, you know, he's credited with inventing various uh, important agricultural technologies, but also was said to have consumed Basically, the, the, the myth is he looked around and he saw that the people were starving. They were, they were sickly. Uh, they needed medicine. They needed more food. So what he did is he set to work consuming hundreds of plants per day and as many as 70 poisons a day in order to chart the medicinal properties of the natural world in order to alleviate sickness and starvation and disease. Um, and you'll often find illustrations of him kind of like chewing on the end of some sort of vegetation. And he's a really interesting character in the artistic depictions as well because he uh, he has these kind of bovine features and even uh, these kind of horn-like protrusions on his head, which apparently we see in some other Chinese mythological figures as well. Well, this is great because even though there may be uh, – there could be mythological elements to the specific story of Xinong – it highlights the fact that at some point there had to be a lot of trial and error going into our knowledge about mushrooms, right? You couldn't just like look at them and <laughs> reason from that knowledge. And like people were making decisions about what mushrooms were safe to eat long before we had laboratory testing procedures and all that. So there, there are just years and years and, and many uh, historical recapitulations of painful, horrifying trial and error in mushroom foraging. Uh, in fact, Bertelson writes about this. She talks about uh, specifically what was going on in the literature of uh, the 18th and 19th century in the medical literature. Uh, she says, quote, mm -hmm. it is full of accounts of unsuspecting foragers coming home with their prizes only to find themselves hours or even minutes later laughing hysterically or bent over with intestinal pains, unable to move from chair to bed. So serious oh. were cases of poisonings in France that in Paris in 1754, the city fathers passed an ordinance prohibiting the sale of any mushrooms in the markets. So like wow. the, there's so much mushroom poisoning, people just trying to like figure out what you're supposed to eat and, and not uh, or or maybe disregarding what was already known by other people uh, that there was, there was, they were just like, OK, we're, we're saying nicks on the mushrooms, no mushrooms at all. Oh yeah, indeed. Indeed, what was known and perhaps forgotten. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. It's, it's interesting too to think of like just the very early days of humanity uh, as the human expansion spreads out of our, our you know our ancient places of origin. Uh, the human, these humans, and uh, and and and, and prehumans would have encountered just new environments. Uh, that means new species, new substances that they would then have to test out and figure out again, like what is. What is beneficial? What is dangerous? Uh, you know, what is food and what is a potential medicine uh, as they continue to spread out in the world? Yeah, and I think this is something you see throughout the history of mushroom literature is a gradual process of ruling things in. So yeah. in the in the 18th century French example, I mentioned in 1754, they said, okay, no mushrooms at all in the markets. But, you know, mushrooms are good. So this was eventually amended. And uh, Bertelson mentions that in 1808, they changed the law to allow seven species in particular in markets in Paris. And the mushrooms had to pass inspection by police appointed experts in order to be sold. Now, that would make for a good uh, historical uh, television show, the, the Mushroom Police. <laughs> all right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. 
You know, there's something I've uh, sometimes kind of wondered about when people really enjoy meat, you know, people who are big carnivores, like I just love a good steak. If part of the enjoyment is a sort of sublimated, implied sense of violence or struggle in the idea of eating the meat, because, you know, if you're eating meat, you, there was some violence that happened at some point. Something is a little bit dangerous about your food. And it makes me wonder if maybe in the back of our minds, there's something slightly psychologically similar going on with mushrooms. Uh, I mean, probably not because uh, not if you're buying button mushrooms from the store or something. I mean, that's just like any other crop at this point, but maybe with foraged mushrooms, there, there's a similar danger running underneath the skin. Oh, maybe so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and uh, to come back to, to Cal Flynn's piece in Ian, uh, the author there uh, also compared it to the consumption of a particular meat, uh, the Japanese delicacy of fugu, um, you know, in which the risk and the skill is part of it. You know, it's like, is the, uh, is, the, uh, is the chef in this case, are they skilled enough to pull this off, to remove the dangerous parts and serve only the delicious parts? Uh, and so, so uh, that author ties this in to, the, um, uh, to, to, to our uh, relationship with mushroom foraging. Now, now, to come back just briefly to just the idea of there, there seeming to be an uptick in mushroom enthusiasm, um, you know, especially what we see online and all. I just wanted to share a few more thoughts about it. First of all, I, I do think there is probably a connection here to the in increased mainstream interest in psychedelic mushrooms and the increased in promising clinical research, which we, we outlined, what was it, last year in a several-part series on psychedelics. Um, I feel like that I feel I feel like that is part of the scenario, at least with some people. Um, also, I, we should always drive home that humans have always been fascinated with mushrooms. Uh, so there's nothing new about mushroom fascination. We see it in ancient art. We see it in Super Mario games. So it's 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 just part of who we are. And if you want to read more about this last point, it was touched on in a New York Magazine article by Sidney Gore with the wonderful title, Why Are Mushrooms Taking Over My Social Media Feed, My Medicine Cabinet, and My Closet? <laughs> uh, referring to, like, fashions, I believe, there. Oh, like those uh, fungus hats, you know, like Paul Stamets yeah. wears. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Paul Stamets fashions. Um, I also found an interesting article about a huge uptick in Scottish mushroom foraging, a uh, steep rise in Scots enjoying fruits of foraging by Maggie Ritchie. And this article put it this way, quoting Terry Carmichael, a resident forager for wild tastes at the Carmichael estate and, uh, in Lancashire. Uh, quote, more people were trying to get back to their roots and to nature since the pandemic started and we reconnect with nature. There are so many foods that are right on our doorstep uh, that we see every day and can bring into our kitchens. They're all packed with nutrients, far more than any sold in supermarkets. And it's also worth noting um, that articles speak, uh, you find articles speaking to the rising, quote, hipness of mushroom foraging in 2019 and earlier. So a lot of this was already in motion. Um, uh, for instance, there was a Guardian article titled The Gospel of Mushrooms, How Foraging Became Hip. And that was from October of 2019. Uh, and for my own part, I have to point out that my family took a guided foraging exercise, um, like a, a guided hike through an area where there were known to be some edible mushrooms in uh, uh, earlier in 2019, I think summer of 2019 as well, uh, there's apparently been just overall kind of a demographic shift on top of this where mushroom foraging was previously the kind of hobby that uh, you would often see older individuals engaged in, and that has shifted a bit younger in, uh, in recent years. So part of this goes back to pre-pandemic times to 2019 and, and these trends, but I, I definitely also, to come back to what you were saying before that, would connect it to 
trends we've seen in uh, self-sufficiency and production of foodstuffs in the home or around the home. Uh, the same way there was sort of a craze for like people making sourdough bread, uh, people growing herb gardens and things like that this year when I think I think suddenly a lot of people realize that it might be much easier than they had previously thought to acquire food items from places other than the grocery store. Yeah, yeah. I also want to mention that um, that that foraging course that my family took, the, the guided hike, mm-hmm. um, it was kind of a varied group. You know, you had some people that were just kind of nature enthusiasts, but then there was one guy that was like straight up survivalist. Like he oh, was, boy. you know, he was there to 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 learn. I mean, he was there, I think, for a little socialization as well. You know, but he was also one of these guys who was like, "Yep, it's coming," and I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna be the one to know where the mushrooms are when the Y2K bug hits. I'm going to be here with my gun, mushroom hunting. Yeah, uh, and I think we could all relate, relate to that. You know, we do a little, um, uh, you know, doom fantasizing, and we're like, oh, man, if it's suddenly Cormac McCarthy's The Road, I want to know what's up, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, especially, as we previously mentioned, uh, you know, fungi are going to presumably do do all right <laughs> if the sun gets blocked this, out, right? This is a great point. I didn't think about this. So the, in, in Cormac McCarthy's The Road, the earth is kind of dead. The sky appears to have been, uh, I don't know, clouded by some kind of particulate matter. Did you ever have a personal theory as to what the event was in The Road? Was it volcanic eruptions or an impact from space? Or um, I always lean more towards nuclear war just because they have those, he had those really, um, I mean, the whole book is beautiful and dark and so it has those richly but those those has these deposits of just ex- exceedingly rich language and there are a few there describing like what it's like in the cities where like the cities seem to be a very toxic place to be and he talks about like people rummaging through the rubble to get uh you know probably radioactive uh foods that they can eat that sort of thing so i kind of i would tend to lean towards that but he does keep it vague as to what exactly happened right well whatever it is something has has darkened the skies and this of course has killed all the plant life so nobody can grow any food to eat but yeah i would be thinking shouldn't mushrooms be doing awesome (laughs) yeah yeah there's no i don't think there's any mention of them growing anywhere but one would hope so if it it would be you it would be almost kind of a comical scene right where the cannibals are hanging out and they're like whoa Guys, there are mushrooms everywhere. We yeah. don't have to eat babies anymore. <laughs> it's Chantrell season. <laughs> yeah. Hint of the woods. So uh, anyway, um, so, so there's the survival aspect of it, certainly. But, uh, you know, there's just fascination with nature. But I, I would say that another huge part of this and something we're going to continue to discuss here is that foraging would seem to be an innate part of the human experience. And we engage in it in various ways. Uh, mushroom hunting stands out as a, as a thoroughly authentic example of this sort of foraging behavior. But again, we can we can all identify with activities that are like foraging that are oddly satisfying. Again, like jigsaw puzzles, uh, Lego pieces, uh, shopping, even going to the grocery store uh, can be an an act of foraging. It can sort of engage some of those same circuits, I feel like. It certainly varies from person to person. Uh, For example, I've been fascinated by the way that some people really enjoy shopping. You know, Mm -hmm. they enjoy like shopping for clothes or whatever. And that's always been very mysterious to me. I don't enjoy that at all. It seems like a really irritating, tedious activity that I don't do unless I absolutely have to. But then I realized, actually, I can relate to it because I really enjoy, uh, under under at least like less stressful circumstances, I really enjoy shopping for food. 
I like going out to find like nice produce, you know, going to the farmer's markets and, you know, finding a really good looking cucumber or a bunch of mushrooms or something. So, so I think I do actually relate to that foraging shopping instinct. It's just, uh, with different kinds of items. And I guess that probably works out differently from, for different people. I know some people who love going to the hardware store. I don't really get that either, but you know, that's like a very classically like dad thing is like, oh yeah, the hardware store. Well, I know you and I, back when we could actually physically go in there, uh, going to uh, the last video store in Atlanta, uh, Videodrome, getting oh, to go in there right. and forage for particular, uh, uh, you know, uh, movies we're interested in seeing like that. That is, uh, is, is, I think, very comparable to foraging. Very interesting. Why? Yeah. So I love the Videodrome and, and the produce aisle, but I do not love the hardware store or the clothes aisle. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it comes back to, again, this idea, is there a reward? Is there something that I'm working towards getting that is meaningful to me? Sustenance, either in a food sense or in a, uh, <laughs> a B-movie sense. But clearly for many people, there is a lot of pleasure in mushroom foraging that is not related to the reward. It, it is related to the activity itself. And this is something that kept coming up for me when I was reading about the Russian traditions of mushroom foraging. This is what I referenced at the beginning of the episode, but the term the quiet hunt. Apparently, you know, mushroom foraging is very popular in Russia, and it's often been called this the quiet hunt. <laughs> I like that. Bertelson mentions this tradition in her book when she's quoting a passage from uh, Vladimir Nabokov's memoir, Speak Memory, which he published in 1951. And in this book, he writes about his own mother's obsession with mushroom foraging. Quote, One of her greatest pleasures in summer was the very Russian sport of hodit pogribi, looking for mushrooms. Fried in butter and thickened with sour cream, her delicious finds appeared regularly on the dinner table. Not that the gustatory moment mattered much. Her main delight was in the quest. Mm. Bertelson also quotes the Russian-American pediatrician Valentina Pavlovna Wasson, who, of course, was married to the famed mycophile R. Gordon Wasson. They were sort of a, a uh, amateur mushroom expert team in, in the mid-1900s. I think that they were also heavily involved in uh, spreading the word about psilocybin mushrooms to, to yes, much they of the were. world. Yeah. Uh, but speaking of her childhood, you know, she came from a Russian family. Uh, Valentina Pavlovna wrote that, quote, when we were naughty, our mother would punish us by forbidding us to go mushrooming. <laughs> great. You know, it's like a, it's like a video game. Yeah. And Bertelson in her chapter identifies a couple of possible factors influencing the widespread passion for uh, mushroom foraging in Russia. One of them that she highlights is the number of fast days mandated under the Russian Orthodox Church, which would specifically uh, – it, it would imply that Christians were expected not to eat meat on these days and mushrooms would provide a luxurious meatiness to a plate that – you know, when you can't eat meat itself, but also just general poverty leading to that same lack of meat. Uh, but there's also a thing that appears to go beyond culinary preferences. I was reading an article by Ellen Berry in the New York Times for the Moscow Journal called A Hypnotizing Hunt Leaves Russians Bewildered. This is from 2009. And Barry writes that practitioners of the quiet hunt, quote, routinely become so hypnotized that they get hopelessly lost. Huh. Yeah, apparently Russian media is, is full of stories like this. She cites a couple. I'm just I'm going to read from her article here. Quote, 
Earlier this month, a sodden and unshaven man emerged from the woods near the southern Russian village of Goryachi Kliuch, telling rescuers that he spent three nights perched in trees to get away from jackals. A similar tale came from the taiga near Bratsk in Siberia, where a 22-year-old man wandered for five days, covering himself with pine boughs at night to ward off frostbite. Eleven time zones to the west, near the Baltic Sea, a search and rescue team found an elderly couple in a swamp where they had spent the night, the wife in what officials described as a state of panic. It happens every mushroom season. Oh, and wow. so, yeah, very interesting. Barry writes that for a lot of mushroom hunters in Russia, the the foraging activity induces a kind of trance state. I don't know how literally to take that, but that's what she says. And it does seem to be consistent with what a lot of people have written about the the quiet hunt. And it's interesting that there, there's a kind of disconnect because – of course, ancient mushroom foraging practices would have been established by people who were probably better at navigating the wild landscape and finding their way home, following the angle of the sun, for instance. While in modern times, we have lost a lot of these wayfinding skills because we don't need them very often. And instead, we rely on technology, which is not always reliable. So autumn comes and people go in, they go to the woods, they trance up and they get lost. And the article quotes a rescue worker named Alexander Zmanovsky, who calls the people who get lost, quote, the children of asphalt. <laughs> now, of course, with stories like this, you also just have to, you know, wonder with some of these stories, people might just uh, be doing other things. And then later they say, oh, yeah, I got lost while mushroom foraging. There are some there are allegations in the article of some people's particular stories where people are like, well, they were just on a bender or something. But uh, but clearly it does seem to happen fairly often. Well, I mean, one is, of course, reminded of the fact that if, if you go on a nature walk, uh, you, 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 you may get lucky and find some, some chanterelles or whatnot growing close to the trail. But in all likelihood, you're going you're gonna to spot that, uh, that telltale yellow uh, patch a little further off from the trail. Mm-hmm. And then you, you may wander off the trail to go and get them. Uh, and, of course, leaving the trail can, is one way to get a little closer to becoming lost in the forest. Um, I mean, this is how, uh, isn't there, a, there's a part in The Hobbit, I think, where the, basically the same thing happens, except yes. it's a fairy's campfire, which, of course, has parallels to uh, patches of, of mushrooms in the wood. Well, and it it specifically highlights things about foraging strategies that we observe in humans and in other animals about, say, the density of rewards in certain areas. Mm-hmm. Like probably the closer you stay to the occupied area, the more picked over the, the stores are going to be. So you might need to make a little bit of a journey to go to places that haven't been picked over by other people already. And the farther you get away, the more the risks multiply, the more energy you expend. Yeah. And then the next thing you know, you got the head of a bear. The, the little mushroom man has, uh, has transformed you. All right, we're going to have to interrupt the conversation right there. Uh, again, we had to split this conversation into two episodes. Uh, so expect the second half um, on the next publication day for Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, but in the meantime, feel free to write in. We'd love to hear from everybody on the topic of mushroom foraging, your experiences with mushroom foraging, etc. I should also point out that if, you, if you're interested in merchandise for the show, uh, we actually have a mushroom-themed Stuff to Blow Your Mind logo t-shirt. It's kind of 
blacklight themed. If you go to, um, I think if you go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, it'll still refer you to this iHeart listing for our show, and there should be a, uh, a store um, uh, selection that you can you can click on store, and it'll take you to that store. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, uh, that's where you'll find it. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.